right. Welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson, and I'm here with another fine studio audience. Some of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> Welcome, guys. You're all you're all veterans. This is not a first for any of you, so my promise to be gentle does not hold. Uh, and we won't be gentle to you, Joe. <laughs> You're all here tonight because you're all old like I am. I protest. <laughs> I'm younger than the rest of you. All right, whatever you say. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, a lot of times on this podcast, we talk about things that happened a long time ago. But there's a lot of interesting shit that happened at the church in the last 20 or 30 years. And we sometimes don't give it its due course, do we? No. Um, we all kind of lived through the age of, um, the, the, of Satanism. It really wasn't an age of Satanism. It was an age that they, <laughs> they thought it was happening. And some of us thought it sounded awesome and went looking for it and couldn't find it because it wasn't there. We were some so, of us are still afraid, John. In the, in the more words of Bill and Ted, we were so lied to by our album covers. <laughs> <laughs> So tonight, um, we've had some wonderful soup. Thank you, um, both of you, both the gens here. And Gen um, we've had a little bit of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll have a little bit more. <laughs> and, we're, and we're ready to tackle the subject of the Satanistic scare, the Satanism scare um, that rocked the entire country, actually, and took um, uh, roost among a lot of fundamentalists. Um, there's some fundamentalists today who still um, buy into this bullshit, but... Um, um, it hit the Mormons particularly hard in the 80s and early 90s. And we're going to discuss that tonight. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Welcome. Um, so, so first of all, returning, um, um, Jen, I've got many, many compliments on your laugh in the podcast. How, <laughs> how you laugh at everything I say. I, I do tend to offer that. <laughs> Glad to be here. And this topic is so important that um, a great friend of mine and a great fan of the podcast and a great supporter who's almost always silent, Ted, is here. Hello. And he's actually on the mic. Hi, Ted. Hello. And then um, you guys um, had your own podcast on Voices, right? Yeah. Uh, James and Jen, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. You both look great. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and um, once again, I'm just I'm just tickled pink that you're all here in in basement in the Velvet Lounge tonight. And we all survived <laughs> the satanic panic of the 80s and 90s. So far, it's not over <laughs> yet. <laughs> Satan is still alive and well and backwards masking everywhere. Yes. Yes. So, um, religion. <laughs> When when you want to motivate people to do things, you have to give them a reward or a punishment. But what if you could give them the ultimate reward anybody could imagine, or you could punish them with the ultimate punishment? Well, then you're going to really be able to motivate them if you actually get them to believe it, right? So it's one thing to offer them a bonus of a turkey at the end of the year, you know, if they work real well. It's another thing to be able to... 72 versions for the rest of eternity. <laughs> Those aren't even in the same category, right? Right. So um, religion has a tendency to take all punishment and all reward and amp it all the way up. Well, when you're talking about the punishment side, these things tend to get kind of scary, kind of scary for people who, who believe in it. 
And I, I think that the originators of this stuff always want to use that as a threat to get something else. But there's another segment of the population that will focus in on that, and it becomes very interesting to them. And um, they start to think about it a little bit too much, and voila, we have um, the Satanistic Scares. Now let's talk about Elvis Presley to start out. I, want, <laughs> I, I think this whole thing, you know, do we go back to the Puritans? The, you know, the Middle Ages, they were, you can read Dante's Inferno. They were obsessed with hell and hellfire and punishment. And this, what happens if you don't obey the the, the proper world order and these pictures of demons and um, all this sort of terrible stuff, which is the, the, it's always the worst thing that everybody can possibly manage. That, that's what hell is. What hell is just, what's the worst thing you can possibly think of? And that, that's what it is. But let's talk about Elvis Presley. I think, I think that to start the conversation, I mean, I, I think you, you make a good point that the afterlife and the scare of the repercussions of your behavior and sinning is one aspect of what we're talking about. But I think the satanic panic or the scare is religion talking about satanic possession and the behaviors that can occur in the life of the present. And that's, I think, fascinating to me that we're, we're not talking about repercussions of sinning. We're talking about the fact that Satan can come into you and cause you to sin in this life. You, well, it's not repercussions in the next. That, 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 that's absolutely it's the right. present scare. You, you know, I, I frame the question as hell and damnation and these evils are this this um, consequence of behavior. Because one right. of the things that religion is concerned about is behaving correctly in justice. But you're right. What happens is those stories, those myths start to creep into the present. Right. And it doesn't take long before you say, wow, according to the scriptures, this devil guy is really powerful. Which, right. ergo, he must be doing all sorts of all sorts of terrible things right now. And what are those things? And how can we see those things? And, and I think the the fear portion of that, the ultimate punishment, is is a lot a lot more real to us than that reward, because that, that ultimate punishment and that that Satanism appears so much in popular culture all through the from the fifties on. You know, we were making making movies about demon possession and and ghosts and goblins and things like that. So I think that that's more real to us almost than that that reward of that heaven. That seems more distant, but the the fear and the Satan and the evil seems more present in our lives and more easy for us to understand. Well, I, I, I like I like what you say about how how it's it's more real because um because. I read something years ago, and I don't remember who said it or, or, or what they were saying. They were arguing that the growth of, say, the, the horror genre in, in the West coincided with the demise of traditional religious belief. So you look at, you know, 1913, Scope's Monkey Trial, or the 20, 1920s, whenever that was. So really, you know, that puts an end to religion, except for fundamentalists and those were, um, uh, we, we really, can't buy into the we can't buy into the traditional religious um, uh, model anymore. So so what happens is then you become very um, cut adrift on things like do I survive my own death? Yeah. And did Grandma survive her own death? And is there meaning beyond this? So what the argument is is that horror movies are a secular version of this life goes on. 
that there is an afterlife, that there is – Freddy Krueger and um, Jason Voorhees might be a terrible characters, but what they show is there is an afterlife. You survived death, right? <laughs> So, so, so it's this perverse, and, and, and there's an actual argument, and when we talk about Satanism a little bit more here, it's always a, just a reversal and a perversion of religious ceremony. In other words, it does not exist without the, the religion that it's based on. It, right. it has, it has no meaning outside of, you know, and, and a lot of it is based on Catholicism, because that's such a predominant theme, mm-hmm. and it has no meaning out, outside of that. Once you become an atheist, this is where Christians get all, all mixed up. Once you become an atheist, also Satanism has no meaning, because <laughs> you have the mass and you have the black mass, they're just sort of the same thing, you know? It's, it's, it's just, they're just sort of inverted. And, and the, the idea of the evil and the, the satanic and the demonic, Let's face it; is far more interesting. Nobody's Sexier, very, very few people are making movies about how cool it is in heaven. Well, and that's 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 a function of religion, right? Because religion is oftentimes to preserve social order. This idea of of denial of the individual interest, of preservation of group dynamics, sacrifice of the self for the group. These positive things, but we're talking about sacrifice, denial, sacrifice, denial. So if you're going to invert that, it's about getting it on, man. It's about hedonism, right? <laughs> it's about naked black masses, right? <laughs> Makes for far now, more interesting movies. I invite every listener to go out, stop the tape now, and go out and watch the documentary on um, the Church of Satan. It was filmed in the 60s. Right. It's, it's available on Netflix from time to time. Let me, let me, let me see if I can find it. <laughs> but there's this great scene well first of all there's two there's two great things there's this woman she's got to be like 55 and she's sitting there smoking a cigarette and her turn is next to lay on the altar as the naked <laughs> <laughs> and she could just not give two f- about it. It's just the unsexiest thing that, that you that you would ever see. But the best part of the film, from Mormon expression perspective, is the, the missionary. Have you guys seen this thing? It's they're they're in this. It's like 1969. It's like the Hyatt Nashbury district, you know, where this church is. The missionaries track this place out while the camera crew is there. It's the best thing ever. And and they're just these two little Idaho white boys. And it's just priceless. Go go see this documentary and all of your fear of the satanic dark powers will just dissipate when you see the actual Church of Satan and see them in their Holocaust robes and chanting and the saggy titted woman on the on the altar. I, I do I do have to agree uh, on that point. Uh the the Church of Satan in 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 everything I've read and seen uh even researching for this podcast, it's like, wow, that's just a lot more boring than you think it would be. It's like the same <laughs> politics as all of the other churches that you read about. Um, but back to your your previous point, though the uh, the afterlife and and um, and the afterlife versus that like Satan Satan in the present, I think. We should get back to your your Elvis point and life after death. Yeah, then. so let's talk about Elvis Presley. Because <laughs> I think I diverted you, and we went on a long tangent no, from it, there. It was, it was brilliant. Thank we, you. We went from Elvis to Jason Voorhees. Exactly. <laughs> we've got nowhere. We've got all the time in the world. We can we can take whatever path we want. So, um, 
what what Elvis did, um, of course, he wasn't the only one, but he's the personification of it. Is he took this this um, African American post slavery black culture from the South um, that had grown independent of of the predominant white culture of the South and had very interesting elements, and he brought it to white America. In and because he was this charismatic white kid. And especially, you gotta remember early Elvis, before like Vegas sort of rhinestone Elvis, had this clean cut edge. Make, like, like from the, the, from the waist up. <laughs> I was gonna say from the waist down, not so much, John. <laughs> but, but, but this, this was the seduction of Elvis is he could bring this element that was to white America, which at the time was post-war was trying to pretend, if you want to understand the 50s, and I say over and over again, the 50s was the golden age of the Mormon church. If you want to understand that, it's trying to pretend that that the horrors of World War One and World War Two did not happen. Okay, so Elvis Elvis takes this black culture and he makes it palatable to, to, to America in a way that obviously um, is right for mass consumption. But takes the establishment and scares the bloody hell out of them because they realize what's going on here. This culture that is vibrant and active and wonderful, um, but suppressed because of the racism, um, comes out. And there's not a, a straightforward way to say, don't consume this, even though everybody knows the, 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 the joke that everybody knows knowing talk, talk about is that rock and roll is all about sex, right? That's where the term comes from. You know, you can look at the, the etymology of the term rock and roll and it's a euphemism for f***ing. Um, so, so they're, they're introducing into white bread America, this post-war America that really wants to pretend that there's not atrocity in the world, that horrors do not exist. That's what the 1950s are all about. Right. We're going to try to build our little boxes and we're going to try to just pretend that everything is all right. Um, and, but here is this subversive culture that the kids are going crazy for and they can't stop. They can't bottle up. And I don't know. I don't know if I would say subversive as much as it's in your face yet taboo. So it's right. It's right there. Yet all of the sudden it's something that has, has been taboo. And now there is a white gorgeous kid thrusting his hips only in your con- daughter's face. That's an excellent point. It's, it's only not kind subversive. of taboo. It's not subversive in that um, you know, teenagers were having sex and doing all these things always. Right. Always. It was the, the idea that in the 1950s somehow they were more pure and righteous is cold malarkey. It never happened. It was a pretended reality that, that television and everything else was perpetuating. And this was, rather than a subversion to the dominant culture, this was an awareness and a window into what was happening anyway. And what what is interesting about that time is that media, so records and television and radio, all of a sudden are accessible to the normal, you know, middle class American. And so what was considered taboo in a household that where, where you didn't talk about it unless you were a teenager in the car or not in the car and, you know, in the haystack with your boyfriend, <laughs> uh, all of a sudden, everyone can see that it's happening and people are exposed and the media takes it and, and runs with it, begins to define it. Absolutely. So you, you go back in time to Salem and to the Puritans. 
And when, when social order, or at least the social order they want breaks down, well, what is it? If, if we are ordained by God, if our cultures are ordained by God and it's not working, well, it can't be us, right? Cause we're do we're the righteous ones. <laughs> it's gotta be the devil, right? So we start burning <laughs> right. witches, right? <laughs> so the same thing happens in the fifties and sixties is this counterculture grows and it gets out of control of this white bread power that wants to pretend that everything's okay. That we won the war and now white people, yay, and we're on top and we're in charge and that's going to happen. Well, that's not happening and it's, it's starting to show up over and over and over again. And I think we overblow the, the counterculture, the count, the cultural revolution of the 1960s in a way that, that doesn't acknowledge that. I mean, the B poets were all from the 50s and 40s, right? Exactly. The, the, the flappers in the 20s <laughs> were doing all the things that, that we just openly acknowledged in the 60s. So, so what it wasn't really a revolution of American culture. It was a throwing off of this ideal that was sort of forced onto American culture, but was never real. Um, and, and, and so if we talk about our Puritans, what they want to do is demonify. Is that a word? De- make demonic. It is now. <laughs> Thank you. The, everything that was going on. So you start seeing this cycle that starts picking up in the late 60s, especially, where music, just like everything else, you're trying to differentiate yourself. And music starts growing more and more um, flamboyant, more and more theatrical. So the the early roots of rock and roll were very sort of simple. And that, that's what made it um, palatable. Um, you know, three chords and the truth, right? And then you start going and it gets more and more crazy, more and more theatrical. Well, if you have this message of this authoritarian figure that you're already sort of rebelling against saying that the music is demonic <laughs> and you're trying to differentiate yourself. And sometimes that differentiation in, in all things comes from pushing to extremes. There's a natural tendency to start playing into the very model that was set up. And this is what starts happening in the late sixties. That, that right. music becomes more, and, and, and music, uh, pop music has gone, always goes on cycles of simplification versus getting very complicated, you know. So you start getting the, the end of the seventies is this very complicated sort of rush sort of, you know, all this stuff. And then you have punk born. Uh, um, and, and, and this happens over and over and over again. So you, you, at the end of the sixties, you're getting into this Led Zeppelin and these other bands start coming online. They start becoming more and more theatrical. And you have the birth of bands that are blatantly playing on this Satanism sort of idea. The I, idea. I protest that we're calling Led Zeppelin theatrical, but let's just put that on record. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You don't, you don't call Led Zeppelin theatrical? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I mean, the, 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 but copycats were. <laughs> they, they weren't as theatrical on stage, but the music was overblown and playing into um, mythology and J.R.R. Tolkien and these these themes that would show up in their music that it, it was not singing about, you know, oh, baby, 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 you know. God, uh, I remember Led Zeppelin saying that exactly, actually, John. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I do agree that there was some Tolkien in there as well. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. And you it. have these ambiguous lyrics, too, right? In fact, no one said, oh, baby, 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 better than Led Zeppelin ever. <laughs> Squeeze my melon, baby. <laughs> or lemon. I'm sorry. It's not my melon. Got to get my genders right. <laughs> You have these ambiguous lyrics coming out too, and I, I remember in the eighties, 
I had a friend that was in, uh, introduced me to Ronnie James Dio. Yes. <laughs> who, and, and we'd listen to his lyrics and we'd say, I don't, I don't know what the f- that means. And I would say, you know what? Either he's a genius or he's inspired by the devil. <laughs> you know? the so there's tiger. this idea of, wow, that's, those are great lyrics, but I don't know what they mean. So they must be coming from somewhere. Zeppelin wrote Stairway to Heaven in seven minutes. How could they have done that? Satan. Well, and, and I remember, I was listening to Terry Gross one time interviewing, um, Robert Plant. And, oh, let me find the, the, from Stairway Heaven, the hedgehog and the, he, the hedgerow. What's, what is it? And she said, There's what? A bustle in your hedgerow. Don't be alarmed now. Yeah. She said, what the hell does this even mean? And, and Palmer was like, oh, who knows? <laughs> you know, how many, how many millions of like drunken high discussions has that <laughs> lyric or couplet inspired? And, and it's just like, you listen to rock and roll. I know we're jumping to the end of the book. You listen to rock and roll, and these guys are morons. They're they're not any smarter than the rest of us. They just know how to play the guitar and groupies, and and we give them so much credit. You know, I'm sorry. I'm about to get punched in the face by Ted. Well, that's the section that gets played backwards. Oh, is that is that backmask? Yeah, yeah. The, it, it's just a sprinkling for the May Queen. That's uh. uh my sweet Satan backwards, my, supposedly. So, okay. So, so, so this theater and you start getting bands like, um, Black Sabbath. And at this point, it's out of the closet, right? They are not pretending at all that they're, you know, like Led Zeppelin would argue, oh, well, it's not, you know, whatever. And, but Black Sabbath is clearly playing on the ideas of Satanism and the inverse of religion. You don't agree, Jen? I absolutely agree on the Black Sabbath point. It, but don't let that turn you off to Black Sabbath, like greatest albums ever. <laughs> but, but, but there's a fundamental misunderstanding. And, and what's, what's funny is the kids who are actually listening to the music know that this is all a joke. All right. One of the, one of the, 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 the songs out there that probably if you took your list of the greatest satanic songs of all time would be Crazy Train by Black Sabbath. Right. Okay. I'm gonna read you. The, I'm gonna read Aussie. you the lyrics. Yeah. Um, at least the, the first verse. <laughs> yeah. I I I I. No, no, I. <laughs> All right. Crazy, but that's how it goes. Millions of people living as foes. Maybe it's not too late to learn how to love and forget how to hate. That's the lyrics of one of the most satanic songs that's ever been out there. What I'm saying is that the people who digested this stuff knew it's all a big joke. It's a play on the establishment. And and what what became funnier and funnier and funnier to people who were metal fans and people who were in this is the more and more the white bread took it serious. <laughs> I, I took it serious. <laughs> you, Ted, I'll, I'll say, Ted John, John, when it comes to music, so a little of my background, I grew up in the, in the 1980s, not as a Mormon, but as a Jehovah's Witness. And the idea that, that Satan was alive and well and living in the United States was very, very real <laughs> to, to Jehovah's Witnesses. And I grew up totally frightened of anything heavy metal. Um, until the late eighties when I'd kind of broken away from that church and a friend of mine had a, what he called the time a makeout tape, I guess it's a mixtape of heavy metal ballads. Oh, <laughs> and you know, I was in the, 
in the back seat on the way back from Great America, Six Flags, with Donna. I won't say the last name. Thank <laughs> <laughs> With Donna, and I'm listening to all of these beautiful songs. And I asked him the next day, I said, well, who sings this? Well, that's Judas Priest. Well, you know, that's Kiss. And I'm like, well, Kiss is Knights in Satan's service. <laughs> you know, though, that's, that's, uh, you know, this group or that. And so once I really, I mean, I grew up totally afraid of those. Right. But once I stopped and listened to what they were saying, I, you know, I realized it was, one, it was all a show. Uh-huh. But I, I read an interview with Ozzy Osbourne and I asked him what his most prized possession was. And he said it was the cross that my father made me out of wood when I first joined Black Sabbath. <laughs> I still have it hanging above my bed today. When you, if you go back, I challenge listeners to go back and like YouTube like early Judas Priest videos and you'll be like, wait a minute, this is about gay leather fetish. This is not about Lucifer. <laughs> you were, so, you were totally had. So. So the the music perhaps wasn't about Lucifer to the kids that were listening to it and the musicians that were playing it, but I go back to my point that the media made it about Lucifer and there was a scare that occurred because a movement was defined by the media based on music that was taboo and and very much counter to popular culture at the time and it and and that and it went further than just music so that's what we've been focusing on in our conversation but but from that people's lives were very much impacted and destroyed by what was a very serious panic in America and other first world countries um it at in and that varied between the 80s and 90s of, of where it was occurring. But but the media and the courts um, took it very seriously and defined it, it fa- defined it to be something that damaged a lot of people's lives. Oh, absolutely, you're absolutely right. And and you 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 mentioned sort of this feedback cycle, and, and we've been focusing on music because that that's where the primary focus is. But it was also film and literature and uh, other areas um, of popular culture, and and it kept fueling and building on itself. It's a great study in software and in psychology. There's an early program called Ezra um, that was a, a supposedly a psychologist. And what this program would do is you type in a question and it would just feed back whatever you're saying to yourself. When you go watch movies like The Exorcist now, what you'll see is this feedback loop of the, this religious idealization just turned on its head and fed back into the culture. So what starts happening is these things start compounding on themselves and compounding on themselves and compounding on themselves um, in, 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 a, in a way that, that starts creating a, a hysteria. And where for years and years and years we'd had this movement of, of horror, but in the late 70s you start seeing this reality tinge to it. The exorcist, the Amityville horror, these ideas that, that this may not just be, you know, if you watch like an American werewolf in London, everybody knows there's no such thing as werewolves, at least, you know, most people. But... The idea that somebody, might, your neighbors, could sacrifice their babies is something that could really happen, right? Yeah, the, the Exorcist is almost shot like it's a documentary. It's a brilliant yeah. film. Um, the Amityville Horror, too, because if you read up about it, how how this is blown up out of absolutely nothing, yeah. you, you know, and 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 this this study in mass hysteria and taking these things on. Um, this is exactly what Jen, the points she's making. Unfortunately, these things stop being a joke 
which sort of Black Sabbath was. Um, and and s- some people start taking it very seriously. So let's talk about Michelle Remembers. Uh. <laughs> as, as sort of a segue, I might say that you mentioned earlier that a lot of, when we we're talking about Elvis, that a lot of what the younger generation is doing is more or less in rebellion of, of what the status quo is. Yes. And if you look as we're coming into the 80s, evangelical Christianity is gaining popularity. You have Pat Robertson with the 700 Club. And, yes. And I remember all of these, um, many of them now defunct because of scandals, all of these Christian ministers that are getting a, you know, on, on a TV presence and they're getting a, they're gaining popularity. No, it wasn't as we're just, going it just, into it the 80s. It wasn't just the satanic scare that the media was taking hold of, but no. that, that, popular Christianity, you know, the pop culture Christianity was also taking hold. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if you're not part of the mainstream media, um, we see this happen over and over again, you can make a voice for yourself being a critic of the media. So, so Christian culture now being bumped out from being like the main thing that people do sort of becomes a counterculture in and of itself, yeah. right? So, so it's taking what is mass consumed and, and it, it is creating this message, but because of the of the way people process Christianity, it, it creates this feedback loop. That, that's that's my point. Where this message that they're saying pumps up the theater of the of the horror films and of the of the music and of of the the media and makes them consumable. So so this stuff, 1970s, you see a lot of this these over the top horror movies. You know things like I Spit on Your Grave. Um, you know where 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 Rosemary's where, baby yeah there, there there's there's these element of satanism this element of um of um and by I spit on your grave i I'm referring to this element of sacrilege of horror as a um a vehicle for just taking every taboo in culture and right. just throwing it out there yep. um um blood sex violence death um Filth, just just every everything possible that and 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 creating that excitement around that that taboo and of course because religion is one of the chief sources of taboo it is such a prime source to go to if you if you wanted to create satanism and you're an atheist you'd have a hell of a hard job if you're catholic it's easy <laughs> you just start turning things upside down and inverting colors and changing the point of hats and stuff like but atheists don't wear hats so so what what do you do <laughs> all right so yeah, mormons don't wear too many hats either but you know, they they some stuff as well <laughs> there's an unfortunate thing that happens that oftentimes history is is the product of two um, movements colliding in a very unfortunate way. During the 80s, we have two very unfortunate movements. This sort of Satanistic scare that's coming up and rising. This, this focus on darkness as an opposition to light as Christian, Christianity defines it. And then the psychological, the pseudo-psychological phenomena of recovered memories. Yeah, absolutely. It's the perfect I storm. Agree. Yeah. It so is. Michelle remembers. Michelle remembers a book published in 1980. 80. Um, about a, a woman who is having some trouble in her life. It, this is supposedly a true story. And she goes to her um, psychiatrist. No, it's actually her husband. Yes. Oh, even better. Her husband was a psychiatrist. Ah, excellent. Uh, the, the book has been sort of debunked and argued about and that, that sort of stuff. Um, but she starts going into these recovered memories. And, and, and it's, it's, 
the the book is actually fascinating. Um, it's 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 not great literature, but it's interestingly written. Um, in that she's going through these patterns, and it, it sets up this sat- satanic calendar of events, and so she's remembering these things as they happened to her as a little girl. And of course, children we biologically have a soft spot for children, but she's describing these horrific absolutely deplorable things happening to her as a child. And then in what she's recovering these memories of her parents joining a satanic cult and her as a six year old girl or, or however old she was, if you remember um, observing these things of being thrown into a pit of snakes and covered in blood and just all this sort of seventies horror sort of stuff. But the book is touted as her actual recovered memories. And in the end, um, she likes Lucifer has this, Congress with all of his um, uh, <laughs> chief what are, what what are they chief priests once every twelve years I'm looking to you Ted you're our uh, resident Ted, Ted is uh, supposed to know the answer to this out. question everyone's laughing but I I took that stuff seriously <laughs> I, I, Satan's Congress the, the one thing I remember <laughs> yeah. is that all the chief priests of Satan have the right middle finger cut off <laughs> and of course we all know who's missing this right middle finger Yakuza. <laughs> Who? The Yakuza. Oh no, I was thinking of I was thinking of Grateful Dead. Oh, what was, what was his name? Jerry Garcia. Jerry Garcia. Um, so 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 this book spawns other books, and I, I can't remember if it came first, but um, go ask Alice. Um, I think came before. I think that was in the seventies. Right. Go ask Alice was first, and and then mm-hmm. Jay's journal. Yeah. Go go ask Alice was this this girl and i don't know i haven't read a lot of the um debunking stuff on it um it could be i i read it years ago this this young girl um in the 60s she's about 15 or so runs off to san francisco head ashbury gets involved in the drug sex and all that kind of stuff she keeps a journal and it, it's it's really it's it was distributed to high school students for a long time as this is you shouldn't get involved with drugs because she eventually kills herself or no she overdoses i don't know she it ends in her death it's her journal. After that is Jay's journal. And Jay's journal is what we want to focus on a little bit. <laughs> that was the Mormon lover. Jay's journal is, 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 is the, is a response to go ask Alice. And it's this journal and, um, of this kid named Jay. But instead of drugs as the predominant force, he gets involved in Satanism. And in the end of the book, he kills himself. And this, this book was widely distributed as a call to avoid Satanism. Now, I recently read the book in preparation of the podcast in the, in. <laughs> As did I, John. <laughs> to, to, because we don't have a lot of time to focus on it. <laughs> in, um, the opinion of your beloved moderator, <laughs> the first half of the book and the second half of the book were not written by the same person. No. no. That proves it's true. Um, so- <laughs> Yeah, one guy couldn't do it. It couldn't be one guy. <laughs> couldn't be one 14-year-old kid. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, I I mean, I'll I'll pipe in here and and on on the debunking stuff if if you haven't read too much of it, um there there's very few pages in the 200 plus page book that were actually excerpts from Jay's journal. And and so there was sadly a child named Jay or whoever his name, you know, whatever his name was in Utah that uh, did commit suicide and had a very hard time in adolescence. But um, there are very few excerpts in, in the book 
um, by Sparks. Is that Beatrice, Beatrice Sparks. Sparks? Um, that were, she, she fabricated the rest of the book. And, and there's, and, um, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, you know, a sad child's story has been, was, was turned into a propaganda used by, uh, people to scare children away from satanism but. This, this pious deception <laughs> yeah and, exactly and, and i, I mean, didn't i didn't read any of the counter arguments i picked the book up cold right and and read it and it's clear and i am no literary like scientist <laughs> it's just absolutely clear the writing styles shift you see a troubled kid there's elements of his journal that that sound like a troubled yeah, 15 year old absolutely. He, he's obviously intelligent but struggling with sense of of self-esteem and self-worth and a little bit of alcohol and, and, you know, getting in trouble. And, and the, it's interesting from a Mormon perspective to see that idea that he is a divine special person with a special mission and he's fucking that up and how that messes with him. But when you get into the end, when it starts adding into the satanic stuff, it's just weird. It's not in the same style and like the vocabulary changes and <laughs> what? No, I, I, I agree. I mean, when I was reading it, I, re I remember lying in bed and just telling Ted, like, are you serious? Like, why are you having me read this book? Because it, it, uh, it, it wasn't real at all. But then, but then I'm an adult now and you know, you 30 plus years and, and I can't imagine reading that as 13, 14, 15-year-old in the 80s or whenever oh. that was published, I, I didn't have the opportunity to read it when I was that age. And I can imagine how the way Mormons frame everything as the gateway drug to hell and eternal damnation, uh, I, I can imagine ha reading that and not being frightened for for my life, well, for, that's for the my whole soul. Intent. The book was entirely written to frighten children. It's a cautionary tale. Now, you read yeah, it as I, a kid. Yeah, yeah, I read it when I was 16. It sat on my bookcase next to... Now, for reference, how 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 old are you, Ted? I'm 45. Forty five. Forty five. So I lost You're track. 16. You're right, you're right in the sweet spot. This is around yeah, 1980. This is in the 80s. I was in high school. I read it. And I also read Jim Carroll, Basketball Diaries, Life on the Streets of New York. Which is a real story uh, which is of a, a young adolescent but, and but, his heroin addiction but, at age 13, for but Christ's I, sake. But I gave both books the same amount of credibility. Oh, I, did you read I mean, it, Jen? Did you read it? You have the luxury of saying that's ridiculous at your age, because you. That's what I'm saying. It's a, that's what I'm it. saying. It's a tragedy. Then, yeah. Back then, it was terrifying. I mean, I was in also growing up in the '80s, living in Utah Valley, where all of it happened. So it was. It was like you, you and your friends went to the grave. Uh, yeah. Of, everybody, yeah. everybody would go. Yeah. You'd go there with groups of kids in the canyons. There were always little rituals and cults going on. When I was, uh, when I was at that same time walking through the canyons, um, near my house, I came across a, a baby deer that had died and its eyes had been, were out and its tongue was out. And it's probably, you know, just the maggots ate their first, but in my mind, Satanist. it was a Satan cult yeah. had happened there <laughs> and they sacrificed this deer and took the heart out and the eyes out. And it terrified me as a kid. Cause I, I, I want to be clear for people who are growing up in the church today. For those of us who grew up during the eighties, 
in that, well, 70s, 80s, this is the height of the Cold War. And the world was just about to service at this time. And, and the church used this to keep us all in a state of just absolute fear. Because, you know, when my parents went to school, it was duck and cover. And with us, it was like, ah, you're fucking yeah, I mean, don't, don't. It's, it's gone. Over, no man. And you can see it in the, in the media, you know, watch Rocky Three or Red Dawn or these, these, these movies that, that just, this, this fear that, that the end, the end was near. And, and, and this, that, that, that Satan and his power was growing and growing and growing and this stuff was real. And like you're talking about, Jen, that, that anything that was out there, um, would be seen as sign this is all happening. So let's talk about the scare that starts happening in the 80s all over the country. This is not just a Mormon phenomenon. And oh, Mich- absolutely Michelle not. remembers no. is, um, she was Catholic. She, this was not, this was not a Mormon thing at no, all. No, and the Mormon thing even came just a, a little later. I mean, they're behind the times as usual. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a little slow. <laughs> so, so <laughs> not just in up, fashion. I'm sorry. Growing up as Jehovah's Witness, we, like I said earlier, we had that scare. And I remember sitting in a meeting, you know, either a Thursday night, we went to church two times a week or three times a week, sitting in a meeting when somebody announced from the stand or the pulpit, rather, that Smurfs were satanic. And, and now a lot of people laugh, but you can, you can Google this. And, and Jehovah's Witnesses, we actually believed at one point in the eighties, Smurfs were satanic. And they said, well, Smurf in German means little devil. <laughs> and my dad, who's German and should have known better, brought us home that night, had us gather up all of our Smurf toys, took a knife and cut the heads off the toys <laughs> and burned them. And, you know, sitting from sitting in. in Which is probably more satanic I, I than Smurfs, <laughs> really. You know, and, and, yeah, well, it scared both of it scared the hell out of us when we were kids. There's stories of people who wore a Smurf necklace to church and the Smurf. You know, during the prayer, came alive and jumped off the necklace and ran out of the kingdom hall, <laughs> and we believed it. And you hear stories from the from the stand of people that go to garage sales and they say, "Be careful what you buy," because I bought. You know, I knew somebody who bought a table at a garage sale and it was possessed, and then you know their house became possessed. And there was this idea that even inanimate objects could be possessed by the devil. And so growing up, we lived in abject fear, not of God, but of Satan. And for those of you right now chuckling, I have one, I have two words for you. Ouija board. Ouija board. <laughs> so right? true. That, 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 that most of you, I would dare say, still have this harbored feeling <laughs> that this inanimate object, a Ouija board is a, is a, I was going to swear. I'm, I'm trying to be better. <laughs> You're surrounded by those. With <laughs> it's a, it's a printed alphabet with a little stylus. That's all it is, right? Right. But the idea this is somehow, do you guys remember the story from, like when you're a deacon, they'd say, "Yeah," and this the, they were playing with a Ouija board, and this deacon walked in the room and it stopped working because uh, he he had the priesthood. <laughs> yeah, I tried a Ouija board. What a <laughs> disappointment! <laughs> After all that build up, it's cardboard. Well, I couldn't even. Yeah, you know, I couldn't even. I was like, "Hee hee!" I'm gonna make a spell. Dirty words. I, it, it doesn't even work that well. It doesn't work at all. What a rip off. I want my money back. 
But I, right. I think it worked for those who believed it. My mom has stories from the fifties of playing with a Ouija board. Of course, because it's it's part of it's part part of this 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 build up. So so during the eighties, this this goes into overdrive. So I, I mentioned the over the recovered memories. Recovered memories are very important yeah. because in if you don't have actual evidence for something, uh, eyewitness accounts are are so emotionally compelling, but scientifically so devoid of any value and we've talked right. about many of the books that prove this michael Shermer's why people believe weird things mm. has a whole chapter dedicated to what we're talking about the satanistic scare um, um um mistakes were made but not by me talks about self-justification and some of these these elements and this has been routinely and over and over again proven to be not true but the way we evolved we trust testimony so much more than outside evidence that allows for these cycles to start happening because so many people will tell you stories about these things happening and it's always happening to somebody close to them my nephew's sister you know they actually had i remember i this was this would have been i was a senior so 1991 my english class the english teacher who wasn't lds or wasn't active lds had a social worker he was a Christian social worker. Come in and tell us stories about going into these houses where people were possessed and people being thrown against the wall. And, and this is an English class in a in a high school. And just that 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 the idea that that the devil was out there and playing havoc with the system and just uh, just behind the scenes, you know, was 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 very prevalent. So- I, I think you bring up an important point, John, about the the entire satanic panic or the scare that we're talking about and that and and the vulnerable folks um that are really the victims in the entire thing uh were the children who who were convinced that they were not remembering the abuse um and so it's so, so much of the satanic panic of the 80s revolved around satanic abuse of children by adults and and the psychology behind those interviews and the testimony that was planted basically in these kids heads you know convincing children that something happened to them that did not happen um it, it was a huge part of why the media grabbed onto it you can't you you can't not report you know on this um uh, on this group of children that have been abused uh, in some so- sort of satanic ritual or, um, you know, so I think, I think a huge part of, of why it gained hold, you know, and took hold uh, in, in the popular media was because of the psychology of, of these memories that children were repressing or forgetting um, that ended up being false, you know. I have had in my career about 10 major disagreements with the ex-Mormon community. And one of them has to do with that steaming pile of shit book written by Martha Beck. <laughs> um, uh, uh, convi- um, accusing her father of donning Egyptian. <laughs> 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 uh, no, I really, there are ex-Mormons who hate me for this. I will get hate mail. Um, <laughs> donning this Egyptian stuff and then ritualistically um, abusing her. All through recovered memories. Sure. And it's, it's, it's just flat, flat, flat out ridiculous. 
Um, and I would invite anybody first to, to Google Martha Beck's husband's response to the book. Um, cause she, he gets named in the book and some things and he comes out and says, this is all just bullshit. Um, but, but it, it, it falls into this thing that, that there, there are some really great principles of, of, that we have about victims. And victims are, by definition, um, a victim, a power, right? They're on the bed. So, so, so there's a response to say, we can't further victimize the victims by not acknowledging their pain. So when somebody comes up and says, I was ritualistically sexually abused and it was very traumatic for me, you don't say, ah, oh, bullshit. You're full of it. Uh, I mean, your response is to say, oh my God, you know, and kind of give them, give them, um, a step back. Particularly if they're six or seven years old. Well, and you look at the transcripts now of, of some of these, these, and you guys saw like two weeks ago or a week and a half ago, one of the early cases of this, one of the women who was locked up after 20 something years in prison was just released. They finally overturned the case. So, so during the eighties, this was happening that, um, um, nursery school providers, priests, parents were all being thrown in jail on this recovered memory. And you, you look at some of the transcripts and they look like this. Did your teacher touch you? No. Did they touch you on your belly? No. My teacher didn't touch me. Did your teacher touch you on your hand? No. And they, like, they, they keep badgering these kids over and over, over again. And then the six year olds, after hours of interrogation, eventually break down, and we've shown psychologically it's very, very easy to to implant memories yeah. into into these kids. And maybe this is a good time a good time to talk about what really started to give steam to this satanic panic. Okay, was in 1983 with the McMartin preschool yeah trial. Okay, so let's right? let's, let's, so let's Michelle Michelle Smith, who uh, you know from Michelle remembers actually took part in in either testifying or supporting the parents at this trial. And so it and 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 if you look at the transcripts now or the the story, mm-hmm. it's this crazy crazy accusation of all these weird weird things. And a lot of the reaction was this is just too bizarre to not be true. Right. Right? That was that, right. right. But but it did start but 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 that that's what's interesting about the the media and and the way that pop culture panic can spread. It did start with one parent's accusation of sexual one, abuse. One parent's accusation of of sexual abuse. And um the and and then the social worker um, that worked these kids for their testimony. I mean, it gained steam. It was d- during all this other stuff that we're talking about, but, but, but the social worker that was working the testimony of these many children were, was using a, a form of interrogation for these young, young children with dolls that was incredibly leading that, that they would, n- that would never hold up in court. Right. Well, and, today. and the base assumption for recovered memories is, how do you know if you have repressed memories? Because you can't remember them. It yeah. sounds so ridiculous to say out loud, but that is the basic assumption. So they would talk about, if you read, it's in the Pace memo we'll talk about and other things they talk mm-hmm. about, disassociation a lot. They say right. this is evidence. Right. The fact that, that you, you can't remember what happened to you during the summer, the year you were four, well, that, that's clear evidence that something happened they disassociated from. So it became this... Scientifically, it, it becomes this this theorem that has no way to disprove it. Mm-hmm. All paths. So, if you remember ritualistic abuse, it happened. If you don't remember it, well, it happened, right? Right, because you just you've just suppressed the memory. But it, I think the McMartin case brought that 
into into mainstream psychology. As Jen said, they were Absolutely. getting these anatomically correct dolls, and it and it went from okay, I've been I've been touched inappropriately by my daycare provider to they're sacrificing rabbits in the daycare and telling us that that's what they're going to do to our family if we report this. And they're taking place on all these blood rituals. And it's interesting to note that this daycare was on a very busy street in either Sunnyside or Sunnydale, California, and the entire front of the daycare was windows. Right. So anybody walking or riding the street could see what was going on here, but that didn't matter as much as the evidence that and that the psychiatrists had come up in, with. And that was the first time they started dealing with SRA or satanic ritual abuse in a psychological manner. And I, maybe I don't. Okay. So we've been you know flirting with satanic different. ritual abuse. Mm-hmm. So, so we talked about this, this culture of Satanism that, that grew out in the seventies. The idea that started creeping in was that there were these underground satanic covens, um, and what they were doing was um, practicing witchcraft or black magic or whatever. And then as the stories grew, they went, uh, went to the ultimate evil. They were killing and <laughs> they eating were, babies. They were killing kids, yeah. for sure. Right. <laughs> eating babies, so, sacrificing babies. So, so these stories would grow and grow and grow. And it was this black menace all the time that was creeping underneath. And the idea came... First, that there were these people who would go out in the canyons or, or wherever and do it. And then the idea grew stronger and stronger that there were whole wards that were practicing this in secret. It, it A huge conspiracy theory. It, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, it, um, I mean, in, in, the, in the media, it became a sort of, what do you call it, Illuminati or, yeah. like, I mean, it was... It was the the wealthy, the government, it government was, yeah. um, that that class of These folks were societies. all involved in this secret society of satanic ritual and child abuse and sacrificial killings uh, of babies and animals and uh, the works and I mean that's that's where and the Mormons grabbed onto that in, in oh. the late eighties nineties, which was interesting. <laughs> right. So so. Once, Jumping ahead. <laughs> this was this was an American phenomenon. This culture, this this idea that's happening, and the stories get keep getting better and better and better and better in in, in the media. Um, and as you know, to once again jump ahead to the end, Michael Shermer states um, that there has never been any physical evidence found ever that any baby has ever been m- murdered or whatever. And and so so the stories have to get elaborate. So, so, yeah. so because, because, okay, well, if you're sacrificing babies, well, where are the missing babies? Oh, well, they're, they're impregnating teenagers and keeping them in prison in the basement so they can have babies so that we can go. And, and then, and then the story gets better and better and better <laughs> to explain why there's no evidence. It's, a, it's a standard conspiracy thing, theory thing. You have to keep, wrapping more and more layers around your conspiracy to make it work, which leads us to the point where you start to assume that it's systematic throughout all the church. Yet, yet this, the sad thing, and I think the interesting thing about the 80s and 90s, is that people went to jail. So so we're talking about the Martin trials. I mean, the according to Ted and Pipin, if, if, um, one of the most expensive cases in United States history, um, or, or 
the Memphis Three. West is Memphis, that West, West Memphis, Memphis Three? three. Um, we're talking. We're talking about cases that impacted so many people's lives right. for so long. It it wasn't just hysteria. We were putting people in prison because churches, courts, police, daycare providers were all saying the same false stories about abuse and about satanic ritual and and there's no evidence. Right. And you also have these trials with McMartin in the West Memphis 3 where they're having expert testimony from experts on religion and the occult. Which, which is a first as well, right. Instead of introducing evidence, we have with West Memphis 3, particularly I remember seeing this in a documentary where this guy that's an expert on occult was testifying how, well, these kids were dressed this way and... They know, listened to this music, and back the, to our original point. the children were found right. mutilated in this, in this stream and the the marks of their mutilation resemble satanic cults and you know it's since been proven that there was these turtles in the stream that were would snap at anything that was floating in the stream right but we all of a sudden we're going all the way back to the 16th and 17th century when we have these witch trials and we have people that are experts on religion and witches in the occult testifying in criminal trials yes it's a perversion this whole thing is a perversion of the scientific system because yeah you have experts on things that don't exist how can you disprove expert uh, like i'm an expert on witchcraft (laughs) right you know it's like well and then it becomes well he's an expert right he's got a phd in what what was his phd in um uh, and and it just it just starts building and building and building and and at the and so and at the same time we've got we've got the court cases uh, on television. We've got our, our the talk show hosts of of the time, you know, of the era, um, like Rivera, giving making specials, you know, huge, long, like three day, eight time, eight time. I don't know. I mean, I was I was a little young, but I remember the I remember Rivera and how big he was talking about satanic rituals and millions, millions of people involved in satanic um, worship and ritual and, and which, and I mean, it, and it was a huge affront to the Church of Satan who, <laughs> I mean, these are real people that are a much smaller population they, than what we're talking about. They must have been about. like in committee meetings saying, <laughs> why can't we get any funding? There's so <laughs> millions of us, man. Millions and millions. Exactly. <laughs> Well, it's, it's hard. You know, we talk about fear. I just, how scared I was at the end of the world. Mm-hmm. How the other day I was driving home from school and he asked me, what's the second coming? And I started laughing. I'm like, well, we have to talk about the first coming. For- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and it's just how, at his age, how, how just the, how scary yeah. I was. Yeah. Holy shit. Then see, my, because my kids, Movies on Satan and yeah. devils and demons like, don't scare them one bit. Serial killers, yes. I love these old movies from the sixties <laughs> and seventies about Satanism. They're yeah. just brilliant, especially the pornogra- pornographic ones. Yeah, Rosemary's. <laughs> oh, even even the ones they did with you know with Christopher Lee did with uh, the Edgar Allan Poe movies, uh, Pit in the Pendulum or House of Usher. They were all satanic. Okay, oh. let me just say with the McMartin trial and the. West Men- Minister 3, right? West Memphis 3. West Memphis 3, thank you. Um, now, when we watch the documentary and we're talking about how ridiculous it is that they brought in all of these, you know, experts, 
back then, I 100% believed all the stories. I believed that all those kids were sexually abused. I believed that those th- those three killed those little boys. I It was well, also I, real and scary. I, I shudder to think that I would have been on a jury Oh yeah, on the McMartin trial when when I was younger because I, I would have yeah i would have i would have condemned con- people yep, to them. years think, in in prison absolutely think about something as simple as a razor blade and apple you all know what that is we were we were schooled about it over and over again it's never happened <laughs> in the history of the world no one has ever slipped a razor blade into an apple and given it to a child but we sure as hell spent a lot of time talking about it and worrying about we it. Tearing our, tearing our Halloween candy yeah, apart. Halloween candy. Be- because, because as an authority figure, the fear that something like this is going on and you're not responding properly. It's the same thing that happened with Bush's, um, uh, his color codes for threat level. Yeah, absolutely. The, the problem good. with the system was no one politically had the balls to ever lower the threat level. Because if you're a politician and you say, lower it from orange to blue or whatever the hell the color was, <laughs> and something happens, well, you're, you're exposed. So it just went up and up and up till it sat at orange and then it disappeared. And, and this is the same thing that leads us to the Glenn Pace memo. <laughs> I, I, I do want to say, okay. I do want to say, John, before you transition to the Pace memo that, you say that no one had the balls to defuse it. And, and I mentioned Rivera and his, um, and his television show and, and Geraldo, uh, Geraldo, <laughs> Geraldo. Exactly. I guess, I, I guess he's better known as, as Geraldo than Rivera, but, but he did apologize, uh, later for his satanic ritual, uh, television s- specials. And it may have been 90 seconds or 120 seconds or however long his apology was, but, but he did come back and say, I was wrong. And there's very few people with his sort of influence at that day and age that dare do that. And I, I want to give a nod, I guess, to that, 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 and, and it probably made some impact with some folks that he came back and said, you know what? When I stated, you know, that data, it was wrong. I was dead wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this has all been debunked. Only, right. Only like, um, conspiracy theorists believe this stuff today. Right. I'll, but, but the Pace memo was still interesting. So let's the, go back the to that. Pace memo was <laughs> so, so Glenn L. Pace at the time, and, and, and there is a lot of belief that he eventually lost his position over, over this. Right. Because they had yeah. to get rid of him. Yeah. Glenn L. Pace was the presiding bishop of the church at the time. This is 1990. And he was writing a, um, a memo to the church black ops department, um, the strengthening the strength, strengthening the members or strengthening the strengthening com- church members. Committee. Right, right, right. Community st- st- committee still exists today. Um, their job is to track people. So if you're a Mormon and you are quoted in auspice of the church in the New York Times or in the Salt Lake Tribune or whatever, they will clip the article and start a file on you. So what they they are a, a tracking service for the brethren to track everybody in the church who is an agitator. Um, this is well known. Um, uh, we could, it's probably a, a topic all on its own. Um, I, I, I've come to the conclusion after doing this podcast for coming up on five years now and for being around that 
They are not to be feared. They're the most inept, bureaucratic organization <laughs> in the world because that's the only explanation. Um, but, but the, <laughs> the, the, don't fear and the reaper. And this is who's – so as, as the non-Mormon Mormon of the group, um, and it's Benson. Who's profit when we're doing this commu- – 1990 would be Benson, but Benson, Benson is incapacitated at the time. Okay. So Hinckley and Monson are effectively running the church um, behind the scenes. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, we'll skip ahead a couple of paragraphs to understand what he's talking about. He, he talks about interviewing 60 individuals. This is the presiding bishop. Right. So these are, the, you can imagine this groundswell organization going up through stake presidents, getting with other stake presidents, talking to air authorities, eventually getting all the way up to the attention of the presiding bishop and getting 60 individuals in the church for this guy to talk to firsthand. He reports he interviewed all these 60 people himself. This is a quote. Of the 60 victims who I have met, 53 are females and 7 are males, 8 are children. The abuse occurred in the following places, Utah, 37, Idaho, 3, California, 4, Mexico, 2, and other places, 14. 53 victims are currently living in the state of Utah. All 60 individuals are members of the church. 45 victims allegedly witnessed and or participated in human sacrifice. The majority were abused by relatives, often their parents, all developed psychological problems. He goes on to say they live normally normal lives, but their memories are locked up in a compartment in their minds and surface in various ways. They don't know how to cope with it. Then he goes on, this is key. There are quote, there are two reasons why adults can't remember why adults can remember with such detail events that happened in their past. First, the terror they experienced was so stark it was indebly placed in their mind. Secondly, the memory is compartmentalized in a certain portion of their mind and was not subject to the delusion of experience of ensuring years. This is one of the reasons skeptics attack these 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 things is because they will describe these things in stark, stark detail that that is different from the way normal people remember things, right. which indicates that it's fiction. Exactly. Um, and once again, we go to the Shermer point, which is 53 of these people repre- saw human sacrifice. Where are where the bodies? Where are the bodies? And well, and where is the money? Didn't they spend some money on researching? <laughs> In Utah, didn't they spend some money researching the Pace Memorandum? Have to we the ever tune of to the cover. tune of like three hundred thousand dollars or something. <laughs> they 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 spent some money researching the allegations from the church in the state of Utah. Yeah, and it it was it was determined to be of no merit. Of no merit, they could not find any merit. The only evidence for almost all of this stuff is people just telling stories, which is not evidence whatsoever. We, we don't even have any blood-covered altars anywhere. No, not outside an Ozzy Osbourne concert. Yeah. <laughs> or Jenny Torture or yeah. one of them. <laughs> but Ozzy seems, Ozzy seems so benign to me now. Compared to, you know, in the 80s when I, I was afraid of the man. Well, first of all, you can't understand a word he's saying. <laughs> secondly, <laughs> secondly, I mean, the, the, the last decade gave us exposure to these people and, and, and saw who they are, yeah. which is shrewd business people, you mm-hmm. know. When you look at Kim Kardashian and peel below the surface, what you see here is a shrewd businesswoman, someone who, who does not do stupid things. She knows what she's doing, and she has a nice ass. <laughs> and those two things come together, and she's able to um, create a career out of it. When you listen to Sharon and Ozzy talk, um, you know that, that, that these, these, are cow- these are 
calculating sounds too bad. These are people who know what they're doing. It's theater. Yeah, they're playing right. to a message. And Jimmy Swagger is probably as much to blame for all this as, as Ozzy Osbourne is because they create the environment right. in which teenagers who feel um, separated or disassociated from the culture can go for a place to cons- consume this. But they consume it by sitting in a room and masturbating furiously and listening to this music with their black lights on. They don't <laughs> sacrifice children. <laughs> they don't. They don't. So, so I, I'm interested, and I, and this is somewhat off topic, I suppose, but, but, um, be, because I left the church young, I'm interested in knowing if in the 80s and early, early 90s, right when I left, then there's this aspect of, of Satan and the panic and, and the possession factor and what they can, he or they can make you do in, in your life. Um, so so after that wanes and and the mormon kids that there's no satanic panic anymore now what is satan's place in the mormon church in the catholic church in christianity as a whole how how in 2013 can they leverage that well i think i think it's a great question i think satan in the history of religion sort of becomes more concrete than less concrete, becomes an abstraction. So today, it's all about pornography and social media and rated R movies and Satan. There's this idea still that Satan is influencing everything. That if you go see Full Metal Jacket, Satan somehow gets your mind. And it's that temp, that message in the temple. If you don't do everything that we, the brethren, tell you to do, you're in Satan's power. So there's this constant sort of it, it's it's out there somewhere. It's the end of every horror movie where you seem to vanquish the devil. You seem to take this place memo and saying, eh, and you blow Kay's cross up and you do that sort of thing and you make it go away. And and then it's just it's out there waiting to reform in episode six. And I, I think on smaller levels, too, it's still as, as alive like it was back then. Just on small scales, our daughter wanted to play with a Ouija board. We brought that up earlier. And she had one of her friends that was terrified, begging her, do not play with a Ouija board, because obviously in his home, that's still, devil's going to come in. And and, and and in the 60s, you you. would find Mormons who would say the same thing about face cards, right? It's sort of like the tide rising, and then it descends. Like Ouija board (laughs) is the the extent over here. And then there'll be this, these things in between yeah. that yeah. come and go. But it seems like Satan now doesn't have as much of a hands-on role in misleading people as he did in the 80s. Now you hear about the tools of Satan. <laughs> Pornography right. is a tool of Satan. Mm-hmm. This is a tool of Satan. And if you look throughout history, Satan is constantly, as you said, resurfacing. If you look at 30 A.D., there was this idea that the Jew, that the Christians had, that the Jews were kidnapping their children. That Jewish people were kidnapping Christian children and using them in sacrifices and using the blood to make wine and matzah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that dies down and then it resurfaces another time. It resurfaces in, in Salem, Massachusetts's witch hunts. It resurfaces in McCarthyism. It, and there's, there's, I, it, we always need that enemy and that enemy is constantly resurfacing and becoming stronger and stronger. And Christianity will string that out until the end of time, you know, just to keep their, their ruse going. 
Yeah, they I, need Satan. I, and I think I think these things never go away. You will find elements of the church, the conservative elements, who still believe all this is absolutely true. And, the, and they'll they'll say the, ev- the the fact that the Pace memo was was dismissed, and that even though it went all the way to the top of the church, and and people in high positions believed all this was going on, it was disproved. It's just further evidence that Satan is running the world, right? Yeah, that Satan covered his own his own tracks up. So those tapes, which we listened to, you know, this is before the internet. So there were these 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 uh, um, firesides we listened to in the eighties. They were great. They would tell you which which album we would use this to go find the records, and so most record players that we had didn't have. So kids, <laughs> what is a record, a record player, player? John? In the, well, in the olden days, there were these black um, discs with and and an, a needle, and we called them an an LP for long play, <laughs> as opposed to a forty-five, right, or seventy-eight, or whatever the hell they were. And and you most record players didn't have a backward setting. So what you do is you take your finger and you would <laughs> rotate the record backwards to try to get the stuff. But there were these these tapes that were going around these firesides. So the way we got information back then is we had firesides, and then they record them in Selma Desert Book. And I I I looked a little while ago to find one of these ones that was going around. They would tell you all these you know like they would talk about how satanic we 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 reference this like Stairway to Heaven was. The real thing about Stairway Heaven, it was it was long enough that you could get a good grope in on a dance floor, right? <laughs> that, that's why Stairway Heaven was so popular. Been there. Um, um, so, but 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 we would go back and use it as a roadmap. To say, what? If you play Billy Squire's album backwards, you hear smoking marijuana. <laughs> All right, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna try that out, and 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 that's 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 that 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 it, it perpetuated up. But my point is. That those tapes are still listened to by the conservatives. They'll, they'll, they won't go away. There's still people who believe there are witches. They'll, they'll look at Salem witch trials as evidence that there were witches and it was just a time they surfaced and then they went away. So, so the, the problem is these things never, they just go dormant for a while. You can't ever totally wipe out a virus. Uh, I've always, I've often wondered in the ex-Mormon community why I feel alone as someone that was so frightened by the devil. I mean, I've met a lot of ex-Mormons. Not a lot of them express the same kind of fear that, that I experienced as a child. And I came to the conclusion that pro- probably people that were as scared as I was of the devil as a child are, are still afraid of the devil. And, and did not leave the church. <laughs> they're, they're, yeah, or are leaving late in life, as some yeah. folks are. <laughs> so there you have it. Um, there, Satan's, the Satanistic scare was real. It seemed like this bizarre blip in history, but it actually happened. And people took it really seriously. And uh, we've, we've had this whole conversation with, with a lot of laughter because in retrospect, it seems so bizarre and something the church would just wish would go away. But these things creep up again and again and again. And I'm sure in the future, people will look at the discussions the church has with, you know, sleeve length on dresses and stuff. <laughs> you know, what's funny about religion is it's very rare for us to go and blink and say, you know, those religious guys from 300 years ago, they were really right about this thing. <laughs> like, that, does, that just doesn't Damn, happen. Damn, why does didn't it? I listen like, to oh, that Those guy. guys really had it together. Why, why didn't we listen to them? And that's, that's, that's typically not how it goes. Religion's been on a 10,000 year 
losing war with reason. Yeah. We're, um, we're in the valley. The valley. The low valley. <laughs> um, but it, it speaks to the danger. This is why these things, you know, because a lot of people will say, hey, you know, religion, it's just mostly harmless. The church is about doing home teaching, giving bread to people. But it, it and, and that for the most part, that's true. I acknowledge that point that most people do not experience these things. But it gives the platform for these things to grow. And this is the point that, say, Krakauer was making under the banner of Heaven about the Lafferty's. Not right. as some ex-Mormons misunderstand that Mormonism caused the Lafferty's to do their ferocious crimes. It just gave a platform and a venue. And when you watch horror movies, horror movies, almost the entire genre does not exist without Catholicism. And it's not that Catholicism causes it. It just gives this story platform for it to happen. And the reason that people talk about sacrificing babies is because religion has a concept of sacrificing innocent people. <laughs> and once they give up on that idea, it won't show up anymore. It's you guys. I said before the atheists don't wear hats and they don't sacrifice people. That idea does not occur to us. You have to be religious to even fathom such an atrocity. Roger that, John Larson. <laughs> Well, all right. Any any last thoughts? <laughs> you know, I, I I will say, but we were communicating about this before we got together, and at the end of the last conversation, we selected the date. Ted typed "Hail Satan." <laughs> <laughs> at the end of the conversation, I will admit that I hesitated for three beats before I returned "Hail Satan" back to him because even though these things, they, I just I put that as a final that these these symbols. These um, cultural memes that that show up that people play with in this music in this in this in this theater are very very powerful. They they very speak to us, and that's why these things happen, and that's why religion works. Um. So anyway, or it uh, doesn't have to. Jim. Hail Satan! Yeah, yeah. Hail, hail Satan! <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, as always, the discussion continues. On the website at mormonexpression.com. And as long as we haven't been hacked by uh, Stadians or whatever this um, particular month, you should be able to access this and and the back archive. Ted, Jen, Jen, James, um, it's been a true pleasure. Come back anytime. Thank you. Good night, everybody. Bye.